Good morning. You can see in your bulletins that our text for this morning comes from Colossians chapter 1, verse 27. And before we read, I'd like to set the stage for us by offering a very brief summary of the background and message of the book of Colossians. Uh, it was a first century letter written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Colossae, meant to be read to their church as well as the neighboring church in Laodicea. And reading the letter, it appears that one of the issues that was facing this church at this time um, was this idea that while Jesus was great, uh, there might be something more that was needed for life and spirituality. And therefore, at the, at the heart of Paul's teaching in this letter is essentially him saying in many different ways, uh, Jesus is everything. I understand you, I hear what you're saying, and I know what you're looking for, and I promise it's found in Jesus. As we mentioned earlier, today marks the third Sunday of Advent, and some of the themes of the Advent season are uh, longing and hope. And hope especially is something we think about more often during the Christmas season. But what is it, really? And how do we get hope? So as we approach Christmas and we remember and celebrate the coming of God in a baby named Jesus, we are going to take a look at the hope that he offers us as it is held out to us in the scriptures. So read with me Colossians 1.27. To them, that is his saints, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Let me pray and then we'll begin. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word. And we ask that your spirit would be with us now and uh, open our hearts to it and open it to our hearts. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I was the type of kid who had really big dreams growing up. And one of my earliest dreams was to grow up and become a professional basketball player. And so naturally, when I entered a new middle school in seventh grade, I had to make the middle school basketball team. And so I went out for the tryouts and did my best. And in the days following, I waited by the phone to receive the call and know whether I made the team or not. And the call came, and I did not make the team. And so I vowed that I was going to work really hard over the next year, and I was going to come back in eighth grade, and I was going to make the team, and I was going to be a star. And so as the, as the year went on, and especially as tryouts were approaching, I would, I would run in the mornings before school. I would practice my free throws, practice my ball handling skills. The tryouts came. I went out. I got the phone call, and I made the team. But uh, I did not become the star that I hoped to be. And in the end, it was all pretty disappointing. And as you can see, my NBA dreams have come to an end. Uh, and in fact, they didn't last that much longer after middle school. Uh, but that experience of having high hopes, only to be disappointed, um, that has lasted after middle school. And it still does. Uh, there have been many things in my life that I've had certain hopes for, uh, only to be disappointed and to have my hopes crushed. And I know that this experience is not unique to me, that we all face disappointment in our lives. All of us have had hopes crushed, uh, and it hurts. And the Bible recognizes this. Uh, King Solomon, in his book of the Proverbs, writes that uh, hope deferred makes the heart sick. And that's a feeling we all know, isn't it? So what happens to us after we continue to have hopes in life only to be let down? Hope becomes scary. Sometimes we feel it rising and we intentionally stuff it down because the thought of it not being met yet again uh, is too painful. Or we do let ourselves feel hope only to be disappointed again, and then we are angry with ourselves. Like, why did I let myself feel hope again? We become cynical 
or bitter or angry or jealous. You see, the way that we think about hope makes it a fragile thing, and that's what makes it so scary. But it isn't just when we don't get what we hoped for that hurts. It's also when we do get what we hoped for, and it's not all we hoped it would be. Years ago, Tom Brady sat down for an interview with 60 Minutes in which he spoke candidly. Uh, This was after he won his third Super Bowl, his second in a row, and he said that for all his accomplishments, all the things he had done in his life, he felt that there had to be something more. And when he's asked what it was, he just answered, I wish I knew. But it isn't just Tom Brady who's gotten all he hoped for and been disappointed. We've heard other celebrities, we've heard other successful people say it, and we've probably experienced it ourselves. We got what we hoped for, but it It wasn't what we thought it would be. But we're left with a problem because we do know that we need some kind of hope. Because to be hopeless is uh, to be lifeless. You're you're there when you're hopeless, but you're not really there. Uh, And that may be some of you this morning, and if it is, I'm, I'm sorry. I've been there myself, and I don't know what you're going through, but I know what it's like to be hopeless. And I know that is a hard place to be. And I hope that this morning you hear a message of hope that you can cling to. You see, we need a hope that we can cling to, a hope that will hold and that will deliver what it promises, what we want. Because, you see, hope is made of two different things, really. It's made of desire and trust. We hope for something and we hope in something to get us there. And we all have all kinds of hopes and desires for life, but there is a deeper hope in all of us that we truly desire. And we're always looking for some hope to meet it. And what is that? What is that desire, that hope that is beneath all of our hopes? I'd like to present to you this morning that what we are all ultimately hoping for is glory. Now, glory is a hard word to define, but it's something we have an idea of. We, we know glory when we see it. We can understand it even if we have a hard time putting it in words. But glory contains the concepts of significance, beauty, awe, renown, and satisfaction. And that is what all of us want for our lives, to know that we have meaning, to know that we have significance, that our lives matter. To experience this would bring us the contentment and peace and joy our hearts long for. But it's not just to know that we have significance. To experience true glory, we need to know that life has significance. We need to find our place in a bigger story than our own lives and our own personal significance and satisfaction. So we see many people that give their lives to causes beyond themselves, like humanitarian or environmental or political efforts in the hope of creating a better world, and this is good, and we can join them in these, but still, what all of us know and none of us like to deal with is the fact that life ends and that things don't last. And if our hope is only for this life, it's really not a very good hope because there's no answer for death and no ultimate meaning for suffering. So we need something greater to hope for, a glory that can go beyond our own lives and that will last. And we need something or someone to hope in, something that won't fail us or disappoint us. And this is where we find good news in our text this morning. Paul writes that God has given us a hope of glory, and that it is Jesus in us. And Paul says this is hope for us and for the world And if Jesus in us is really the hope of glory, then we need to shape our entire lives around it. And in order to do that, we need to do three things. We need to understand his glory. We need to make that glory our ultimate hope. 
And we need to follow that hope. So first, we need to understand the glory. Because we can't shape our lives around something that we don't understand or we don't know very well. If we do, there's a good chance that we'll get it wrong. You know, for example, let's say you have been told that you have an upcoming meeting with someone that is very important. It could be for work. It could be meeting the family of a significant other for the first time. And you feel that you need to really make a good impression in this first meeting. So what would you do? Uh, generally, we, we would start to do things to prepare for this meeting. We would try to understand what this person likes, things we have in common that we could build a relationship on. We would know how we want to dress for the meeting. We would want to be fit. We would want to prepare ourselves for this meeting. Now let's say that we got this person wrong. Maybe we were given misinformation or maybe we just made assumptions and, and, and we missed. We thought we should dress like this, but we got that wrong. We thought that they would think a certain way about this issue, but we were wrong. Or we thought they liked these things, but actually they hate them. Uh, we, would find, we, would, we found that we tried to prepare, but we didn't know the person we were preparing for, and so we found ourselves unfit for the meeting. Uh, This kind of thing is not hard to imagine. It's probably happened to plenty of us in here. And while at the time we may have been embarrassed or or flustered, uh, we can laugh about it later. And it's good to laugh at ourselves about that sort of thing. It keeps us humble and it reminds us not to take ourselves too seriously. But when it comes to the glory of God that Jesus gives us hope for, uh, it isn't something that we'll laugh about later. It'd actually be very devastating uh, for us to find ourselves unprepared and unfit for this glory. And so it's crucial for us to understand it as well as the person who holds it. And the best way to understand this glory is through story because that is the way that God himself has presented it to us. The Bible for all the types of literature it contains is ultimately a story. And one way of framing this story is to see it as glory given, glory distorted, glory reclaimed, and glory restored. And this is the story that God is the only source of glory and that God made everything. And he filled this world with pictures of his glory. We can see it all around us. But the chief place that we were intended to see his glory was in humanity. God gave us glory, but our glory was a derivative glory. Like the light of the moon, like the moon has no light of its own, but only reflects the light of the sun. We have no glory on our own, but we reflect the glory of God. And we were made to do this by knowing God, loving God, trusting God, and showing one another over and over again that he is good. We were his and he was ours and he made us in his image and gave us this calling to reflect his glory throughout all the world as we filled it and enjoyed it, explored it, and brought out all its potential. And we were satisfied with his glory like we were made to be. Life was significant Meaning and purpose was found in enjoying him and the glory he had given. But we began to doubt his goodness and love toward us and began to think that he was withholding from us. And so we rebelled against him. And we tried to take what wasn't ours. We were made to be like God by being in his image, but we wanted to be like God by trying to be God, by trying to take the glory that only belonged to him. And when we did that, we only distorted his image in us and the glory he had given us, and we brought sin and shame and guilt and judgment and death and suffering into his world. But God in his grace never stopped loving us, the people who messed up his world or his world. So he gave us hope. He made a promise that one day all evil 
would be removed from this world. He would overcome it. And he put a plan in motion to come and get his world and us back. He made promises. He put a plan into motion. He gave us hope. But we didn't know what form that hope would take. We didn't know how it would come. We didn't know how we would fulfill his promises. And that's why Paul says it's a mystery. That hope seemed fragile at times. It seemed like it would be extinguished. And that was because in these promises, God bound himself to humanity. And as we know, people can really mess things up. But God never lost control. And he would never let his plan be derailed, no matter what it looked like. And so he did the unimaginable. And he became a human himself. He took on flesh and blood and he said, I'll do everything. And that's the story of Christmas, isn't it? The hope of glory for us in the world contained in an infant. An infant that would grow up and as he did would reflect God's glory as a human being, just like we were made to in this cold, broken world that we all know. An infant whose whole life was leading up to one purpose, to die and to, and to rise again. For in his death, he would bear the judgment for our rebellion. And through his resurrection, he would take us and his world back from the grip of sin. In his death, he would trade his glory for our shame and our guilt and put it to death. And through his resurrection, he would break the power of death so that he could bring us through it. In this, Jesus shows us God's glory in an unbelievable way. And he invites us to share in it with him. Through his resurrection, Jesus began the process of reversing what we did by sinning. And that's the story. And the best part about this story is that it's true. And so we have a hope that holds. Now I say this and I recognize that not everyone believes this story. And that there is room for doubt. And if that is you this morning, I would just say I'm glad you're here. And I would just ask you to uh, put that doubt on hold for today as we continue. But I would also like to invite you. This is a conversation that I or your pastors or elders here would love to have with you. But this is the promise that Jesus makes. He'll come back and he'll get rid of all the evil, all the suffering, and even death. And that he'll get rid of all the evil in us too. He'll restore that image of God in us. And that's the glory he offers. And that's the understanding of glory that we need. But is that the greatest hope of our lives? Because if it isn't, then Jesus will only disappoint us like so many other things. And so that leads us to our second point, that we need to make that glory our ultimate hope. Now, we can all have very different reactions to that story. Uh, some of us hear it and we think, wow, that is amazing. No sin, no suffering, no death. Jesus is king. Ah, amen. And on some level, probably all of us think that. But on other levels, we might think or perhaps feel differently. And so what do I mean? Well, earlier I defined hope as a combination of desire and trust. And the one that really drives our life out of those two is our desires. And now we may think that, we are, uh, that what drives our life is our rationality, that what really shapes us is what we know and believe is right and good and true. But as much as we would like to think that, what really shapes us as human beings is what we desire and what we love. Consider this. We all know that exercise is good for us and that it's very important. And yet, not all of us do it. Why? 
Well, for many of us, we just don't want to. Or consider what happens when we desire to do something that we want to do, that we love, even though we know it might not be the best thing. We have a word for this. We rationalize our actions. We are so good at convincing ourselves that what we're doing is okay just because we love it and we want to do it, where others might think of us, look at us and say, are you, are you kidding? Like, why would you think that was a good idea? Now, this doesn't happen all the time. Sometimes we are able to think through our decisions and choose to act against what we may desire, but ultimately what shapes our life is our great desire, our great hope. And so when we hear about the glory that Jesus is bringing, our response to it will really depend on what our greatest desire really is. So if we hear of the glory of our lives looking like Jesus, but our greatest desire is to be married and to have a family, then looking like Jesus doesn't mean as much as long as we're still single. Or if we hear of the world being restored to the kingdom of God that it was made to be, but our greatest desire is to have successful careers, then the promise of Jesus' return doesn't mean as much as long as the next man or woman is ahead of us. If we hear of the glory of God's character being reformed in us, but our greatest desire is to live easy, comfortable, affluent lives, then our transformation doesn't mean as much as long as we're struggling or suffering or we don't have as much as others. I think you see the point. I said earlier that glory is all of our greatest desire, but where do we believe, where do we believe we'll find it? Because the answer to that question will determine what we hope in, and that will determine the shape of our lives. You see, it's our desires that drive our actions, but it is our beliefs that drive our desires. And the problem with us as human beings is that our beliefs go wrong and our desires go wrong. And so the work of Jesus in our lives is to constantly turn our hearts towards himself so that we would believe that he is good and that he holds the glory we long for. Now this is not to say that all our other hopes and dreams are therefore bad and that we should therefore kill all other desires. That is not what I'm saying. Uh, Now, we do have wrong desires at times. We know this. Sometimes we want to do the wrong thing. And it is fair and good for us to question our own desires or even in relationships of love and trust to question each other's desires and to say, why is it that we want what we want? But not every desire is inherently wrong. And in fact, we should know that there, there is not one thing in this world that is bad in and of itself All things can be misused, but when God created this world, he declared that it was all very good. And so the problem is not with his creation. The problem is with our hearts. The moment that we put the weight of glory on anything other than God, we've moved that much farther from experiencing the glory he intended for us. So let me put it this way. There is nothing in this world that is meant to carry the weight of our hopes and dreams than Jesus Not our career, not our bank accounts, not our children, not our spouses, not our sports teams, not our possessions. Only Jesus can hold that weight. All else will disappoint. Now, if we do make that glory of Jesus our ultimate desire, then there will actually be no disappointment in life that we cannot endure. And let me say this. We will face disappointment. We will face sadness loss and pain, and it will hurt. 
whether it's not making the basketball team or another team, whether it's not getting the school we want, not getting the marriage or family we want, and not getting the career, whether it's the pain of sickness, physical suffering, or death and loss, we are still living in a broken world, and a lot of that glory is still future. And our pain is worth grieving. And so we should never just you know, gloss over our own pain or the pain of anyone else and just slap a hope band-aid on there and say, oh, well, don't cry. Jesus is coming back and you're being made into his image. No, we should grieve. We should grieve that things are not the way they're supposed to be. And we should long for them to be made right again. It's just that in our grieving and in our longing, we have hope that it will be. And it is that hope that we hold to that keeps us going. And that hope is Jesus. And did you notice where Paul says it is? He says, it is Christ in you. Jesus himself is with us through his word, through his spirit, to hold us and to remind us that there is hope. You see, Jesus is not telling us to kill all our hopes and dreams. He's not telling us to grieve, not grieve sadness and loss. He's coming and he's inviting us to believe that he is the one who will overcome and that he is the answer to all our longings. I said earlier that this letter to Colossians is all about Paul saying, look, I hear you and I'm telling you what you're looking for is in Jesus. And it's the same when it comes to our desire for glory. And so when we make him and his glory our ultimate desire, Jesus also becomes the one that we trust. We hope for his glory and we hope in him to get us there. And in that, he invites us to follow him. And that leads to our third point, that we need to follow that hope We've delved into what that glory is and we've talked about what it means for it to be our ultimate desire. And now we're going to look at that phrase, Christ in you, from which we get our hope of glory. And this phrase is referring to the beautiful reality of what God does for all who come to him. who All who come to him in faith and, and confess our misplaced hopes of glory and rest in him and for, for forgiveness. And that is that God takes his people, both as a whole and as individuals, and he unites them to Christ. It is a spiritual and yet a very real, deep connection with Jesus, a union of love similar to that of marriage. And that is why Paul speaks about the church being Jesus' body or being his bride. We're so closely connected to Jesus that what can be said, that what is happening to Christians can be said to be happening to Jesus. And so just as in a marriage when two people unite, they take on each other's debts as well as assets, the same is true of Jesus and his people. And so on the cross, what was true of us, that we were sinners alienated from God with no hope of glory, became true of Jesus, and he paid that debt. And that is why Paul will say later in this letter that you have died. But what is also true is that what was true of Jesus is now true of us, that he is the perfect human reflecting God's image, holy, delighted in, and loved completely by God is now true of us, which is why Paul will say, you have, died, you have been raised, and your life is hidden with Christ. And when he appears, you will appear. And what the Christian life really is, is learning how to live out of that union we have with Jesus. And to be united to him means to be united with him in his mission of bringing back the glory that he intended. And so what this means is that Jesus actually carries out his mission both in us and through us. He is working in us at the same time he's working 
through us, which means that the life of every Christian should be completely shaped around that one great hope. That is our purpose, and everything else falls under that. And notice where Paul says that the riches of the mystery of Christ in us, the hope of glory, is made known. He says, among the Gentiles. And the Greek word there that is translated Gentiles is the word ethne, which you can hear sounds like ethnic. And the other, word, the other meaning for that word is nations. You see, this is not a hope that is just for us. It is a hope for the nations, for the world. And God's people are the ones who contain and display that hope with the hope that all else will enter into it. Our friends, our neighbors, our families, our co-workers, and people of every nation. And this is why we sing in the hymn, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus, we sing, Israel's strength and consolation, hope of all the earth thou art. Dear desire of every nation, joy of every longing heart. This sounds wonderful, and that's because it is. But what is not so easy is what the other part of being united to Jesus means. You see, if we think about marriage again, if people are truly connected and truly in love, uh, their lives will mirror one another. One spouse will go as the other goes. And it is the same for Jesus and his bride. Which, if we think about the pattern of Jesus' life, it went like this. Suffering rejection, death, and then there came resurrection, and then there came glory. And what that means is that if we follow Jesus, then our lives will be marked by the same things. And this plays itself out in a thousand different ways in the life of each believer. Christians are always dying and always rising again. And these are not painless deaths. This means that we give up things. This means that we let go of former hopes and dreams. We sacrifice other hopes for the sake of this greater hope. And now the wonderful thing about the glory that Jesus promises is that he says, wherever you lose for my sake, you'll get it back. But the problem is that it doesn't mean necessarily in this life. And we hate waiting as humans, don't we? Yeah. And so it's helpful for us to remember all the things that Jesus doesn't promise us as we follow him. He never promises health. He never promises a lot of money. He never promises an easy life. He doesn't promise success. He doesn't promise us family. He doesn't promise that we will not suffer. He doesn't promise no loss. What he promises is that on the other side, there will be resurrection and there will be glory. Look, some of us will have these things in life. Some of us will not. And that can change in a moment. Some of us will seem to have it all and some will have none. But for all of us, if we make them our hope of glory, we will only be disappointed. And if we think that Jesus is our hope for those things, then we have not understood his glory. But here's the best part. It's not only us in him, but it is Jesus in us. Which means that no matter what we face, he has promised that he will be with us. And he will be there to remind us of his hope that won't disappoint. If you were to look at the text surrounding our verse this morning, you would see a few ways that Paul gives us to remind us of that true hope. That is the word of God, he says it in verse 25. That is his body, which is each other. 
He says in verse 24. And if we were to look at that passage, he says that ministers, our pastors, God has given us our pastors to suffer for us so that we would be reminded of that hope. And this is a call for all of us to suffer for the sake of others, to remind each other of the true story from which we draw hope, and to enter that story daily by reading his word. And when we do that, we will find that Jesus will ask things of us, sometimes things we don't want. And he will say things like, you can't follow me unless you do this. And that's hard. But he will also say, I'm worth it. And one place that I believe that Jesus calls many of us, uh, we may not want to do it, but he's calling us and to follow him in is the way that we spend our time. And the time that I'm referring to is time spent with other people. Because here's the thing. God has designed us for relationships, and he has designed us so that our hope would grow and spread through relationship. If it is to be seen among the nations, we are to be in relationship with each other and with them. And there is no substitute for it. And so this means that we will be called to sacrifice things like time, like money, like convenience, like comfort, like cleanliness, to invite others into our life, to have a Christmas party. That's a great way. That's how our hope grows. That's how our hope spreads. But it doesn't need to be Christmas for us to do that. How will we tell our friends about the hope of glory if we don't spend any time with them? So in your reflection on the front of your bulletin, you have a quote from a pastor named Mike Cosper. and He writes about the power of stories to move our imaginations and to stir our hearts. And I want to end this morning by sharing a story with you, a story that will require your imagination. This story comes from a movie, an animated DreamWorks movie that is called Boss Baby. It came out earlier this year, and if you haven't seen it and you've been wanting to, I'm sorry, this, this is your spoiler alert. Boss Baby is a story about a seven-year-old boy named Tim who has all the love that he could wish for from his parents until one day they bring him home a younger brother. And in the world of Boss Baby, babies come from a company named Baby Corp. And as the babies are produced at Baby Corp, they are tested for families by a tickle test. If they are tickled and they laugh, they are sent to families. If they are tickled and they do not laugh, they are sent to management. (laughs) Now, however, there was a mix-up for this particular family, and and one of the babies who was supposed to go to, to management, whom they call the boss baby, is sent to Tim's family to become his younger brother. And the brothers immediately dislike each other. And we realize that what they want is uh, not each other. Tim wants his parents' love all to himself. And Boss Baby wants a promotion at work. They don't want to be in a family together. But the brothers soon find themselves caught up in a story bigger than themselves as they uncover a plot from a rival company called Puppy Co., who is trying to find a way to take all the love from parents and divert divert it only to puppies. This would, of course, hurt Tim, who wants his parents' love, but it would also hurt the business of Baby Corp. And so Tim and Boss Baby work together to bring down Puppy Co. Now, in the end, although there are bumps along the way, they, they do succeed. And in the end, they get what they want. 
Tim has his parents back only to himself. And Boss Baby goes back to Baby Corp and he receives a promotion all the way to the top. But at the end of the movie, we see a sadness in both Tim and Boss Baby. They realize that they got what they wanted, but they weren't happy. It wasn't really what they wanted after all. And so Tim sends Boss Baby a letter at work. And this is what he writes. He says, Dear Boss Baby, I don't usually write letters very much, but now I know that memos are very important things. Even though I never went to business school, I did learn how to share in kindergarten. And if there isn't enough love for the two of us, then I want to give you all of mine. I would like to offer you a job. It will be hard work and there will be no pay. But the good news is that you will never be fired. And I promise you this, every morning when you wake up, I will be there. Every night at dinner, I will be there. Every birthday party, every Christmas morning, I will be there. Year after year after year, we will grow old together, and you and I will always be brothers. Always. And you can see Boss Baby's face lighting up as he reads this letter. He jumps down from his desk. He sheds his suit and tie. He runs joyfully through Baby Corp, kisses his assistant goodbye, joyfully returns to Tim's family to be his younger brother once again. Sometimes we get exactly what we want and we realize that it's, we're looking for something else. And Jesus is saying to us that he is the one that we long for and that our significance is found in his love. And he invites us to follow him. It will be hard work. There will be no pay. But Jesus promises that every morning, every dinner, every birthday, every Christmas, Every disappointment, he will be there. And year after year after year, until he returns in glory. And that we will always be family. May God give us the grace to know the glory of Jesus, to make that our greatest hope, and to follow him no matter what it costs. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the reminder that Christmas is every year of the hope that has come. Would you give us the grace and the courage to shape our entire lives around that hope as we follow Jesus? In his name we pray, amen.